Lord, we're just grateful that you love us, God, that you, God, that you show concern, Lord, as I just, as I just think about how you're king and you're glorious and God, just how small and tiny we seem, yet you show great concern for us, Lord. Um, I pray we wouldn't take it for granted, God. I pray that this season, God, and for all of this year and the years to come, that we would just be in awe of your wonder. God, we just pray that you would, God, just help our minds to be attentive. God, help our thoughts to be fixed on you. and Just help us to learn and to stand in awe of who you are. And we praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is the third Sunday of Advent. I learned this year for the first time that Advent does not start on the 1st of December. So just FYI, if you plan Advent, make sure you're aware that it does not always start on the 1st of December. Um, It's a time, as Ryan reminded us this morning, right, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, but we also celebrate, it is also a reminder of the second coming of Jesus, right? So we not only remember that Jesus took on flesh and he came as a child who had no place to lay his head, but we also expectantly look back, we look forward to the return of Jesus when he'll return mighty in power. As Ryan reminded us um, amazingly last week, so if you did not um, hear Ryan's sermon last week, please go back and listen to it. Just um, thankful for his faithfulness to, and diligence to present God's word um, last week. The week before, Dan started a, the Advent series and he talked about how our God is a wonderful counselor. And today we're going to focus, if you didn't figure it out already, we're going to, we're going to focus on God as our everlasting Father. <clears throat> right? as, I, as I wrestled through this topic, which it's always great when you get topical studies because then you have to basically read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to make sure you capture the whole thing. Um, but as I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking about how as a culture we desperately long for God's unconditional love. Right? As a cu- culture we lack relationships, we lack we lack relationships that are filled with grace, and I think whether we know it or not, unconsciously, we don't want to extend grace, and we don't want to receive grace in our relationships. We're skeptics, we're selfish, and I, I believe that makes us one of the greatest generations in all of history from having a deep relationship with anybody, right? We don't have relationships that are filled with grace, and our natural instinct is to avoid relationships, right? I found this out when I... Um, when I go to the grocery store, right, like we can go and we can pick up milk, we can pick up eggs, we can pick up coffee, we can pick up toilet paper, and we don't ever see the rancher, we don't ever see the butcher, we don't ever see the factory workers, right? We can, we can go in there and we can actually use self-checkout and like you could almost not see anybody or talk to anybody and make it through the store, right? And the other day my wife's like, hey, can you go to the deli counter and pick up chicken. And I was like, the deli counter? Like, why can't I just go buy a package like that's in there? But apparently the deli counter has fresher chicken and, and it's cheaper. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll go to the deli counter. But my, my gut response before I even realized it, like the words actually came out of my mouth was, do I really have to talk to somebody? Like that, that literally, like I caught it and I was like, oh, what, did I just say that? I did just say that. I have to talk to somebody, right? And so this extends like social media, right? Like we have an app and it shows like the very best things about us. It shows our best vacations, our best family pictures, our best friends, our best work accomplishments, right? No one wants to see our enemies. We don't want to see our enemies. So what do we do? We just defriend them or we click the ignore button. Um, we don't want to see our failures. We don't post. Most people don't post their failures, their insecurities, their sins. Um, most of our internet relationships, they're full of, they're, they lack grace, right? Like they're not, there's not unconditional love in our relationships. 
right? It shows only our best, and we present our best in arrogance, or we communicate in a way that is very shallow, selfish, and twisted. And as I, and as I continue to think through this, this topic of relationship and a father, I just started thinking about mental illness, right, that is so prevalent in our culture. Um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, it lists suicide, as I was looking this up, suicide is the number two leading cause of death from those who are ages 10 to 34, Right, that's, that's behind. The number one cause of death is unintentional injury, where people accidentally hurt themselves. Right? Influenza, which everybody's so concerned about, is, is the eighth on the list. Right? That's eighth. Someone commits suicide about once every 10 minutes, and that's only the people who actually end up killing themselves. Right? A lot of other people end up taking their lives. In 2019, 1.4 million people attempted suicide. Right? In the past 20 years, rates have escalated almost 33%. And I think as I wrestle through this, suicide bitterly captures the reality that our culture is lonely and is not and has no hope. Right? It's like I started thinking, it's like when you go, I've never been to an orphanage, but I've heard this said, right? It's like when you go to an orphanage and you don't hear babies crying. You don't hear babies crying because they cease to cry when no one hears their cry and they learn that no one responds. Right? And that, that's the cry of those who attempt suicide. They have no one who hears, and they, don't, they definitely do not know the grace of the Father. And without God's kindness, we're left alone. We're left hopeless, every single one of us. See, but that's, that's the beauty of what we celebrate Advent, where it is because Jesus came as a child. He came to establish an everlasting relationship that is filled with intimacy and grace as best described in the relationship of a father with his child. And so as we read this morning, Isaiah 9, 6, I'm going to read it just one more time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This verse describes our omni-God, a God who is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, who in divine foolishness, he humbled himself to take on flesh as a child, as a baby. Right? For the Israelites, though, when they first heard this, this was a future hope. This was amidst the campaign of the Assyrians who captured and enslaved both the people and the places of Israel. This gave them promise that things would eventually, one day, be much better. This was the hope of the Israelites who were enslaved and weary. The Israelites understood that they were God's children. They knew they had a father. And this was in Jeremiah 31.1 makes this clear. It says, at this time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. The Israelites long for their father to bring deliverance. In chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, he provides clarity that Jesus fulfilled the words that Isaiah wrote. He said, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region in shadow of death on them a light has dawned. This fulfilled exactly what Isaiah wrote in 9.1 earlier, right before we see who God is as the everlasting Father. It says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land, the Jordan, the Galilee, and of the nations. Jesus was the light. He was the light, as Matthew explains to these lands in Judah, he was the hope and the prophesied fulfillment that Isaiah speaks about. See, the, the Israelites were fully aware that God was their father, but Isaiah 
provides this, applies this prophecy that is fulfilled through the exile, through the harsh conquest of the Assyrians, and is ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus brought the light to the shadow of death. Jesus would bring light, joy, freedom, and victory, but it wouldn't be through military conquest as most assumed. It would be through the birth of a child, a child who came to call those out of darkness into light. Jesus' message was to return to the Father. Isaiah 9:6 it articulates the characteristics and the titles of Jesus. So this one, if you read this title, you're thinking about Jesus, it doesn't fit in necessarily your theological Trinitarian box, right? How, this is if you're thinking about God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, then and you apply this text as I believe it applies directly to Jesus, then how in the world can you call Jesus everlasting Father, right? Like we always refer to Jesus, he's the Son. How does this how does this fit? And so it's been about two years now, but when we preached through Titus, Dan gave me the passage that talked about women being submissive and teaching on slavery. So I think Dan just, thanks Dan, he's not here, he's preaching somewhere else this morning, but he likes to give me the things that just don't make sense. The other, the other titles that he gives them are a little more straightforward. This one doesn't fit. So, but at least I'm not talking about women being submissive this morning, and, and hopefully I handled that graciously. If you, if you didn't know what I'm talking about, you can go back and listen to it. Um, so this one, it, there is a paradox though, right? It seems like there's something off, but there is perfect unity between Jesus and the Father. And I just want to read some of these that, so that we're just clear. Like John chapter 5, like John does a really good job of showing that Jesus is, um, <clears throat> is, is like the Father, but is separate from the Father. So we're going to read in John chapter 5. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. <clears throat> and I was looking up, and I probably shouldn't have been looking up because now I don't know. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing himself doing, and greater works than these will be shown to him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we see the separ- the, that they are two related, but they are also separate. And in John 18, 8, 19, he, says, he, he explains this further. He says, where is your father? Jesus answered, you, you know neither my father. If you knew me, you would know the father also. Or in John 4, 8, 42, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am he. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. And you see this again in John ten thirty: I and the father are one. Right, so there's perfect unity between Jesus and the Father. So it makes sense, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would replicate and demonstrate the characteristics and unconditional love of the Father. Right, God is three persons, he's three persons, and he's, he's one essence. There's complete unison in the persons of God. The Father, Son, and Spirit are in complete unity, but they are distinct persons. So this verse, just to be clear, this verse is not saying that Jesus is the Father. It's saying he is a Father, right? He has characteristics that are best understood in terms that we can understand. A Father. But what is even more of a paradox in this verse is, this is where it gets even more confusing at first, if you read it at first glance, is that this verse declares that a child is born, right? But if you're reading like everlasting Father, 
in the same sense a child is born, but he's a father. So he's born as a father, but he's a child. So at first glance, the paradox is just even more confusing. Right? How can, it, how can a child be a father who is born but always existed because he's everlasting and always will exist? So you have this child who's born as a father, but he's also born that has a starting point, but he always existed because he's everlasting, right? It seems, it seems absurd, at least when I, it, you, maybe you take it for granted when it's Christmas time, you read this verse, but it seems a little funny, right? And I doubt Isaiah fully understood what he was writing, right, when he wrote it. I'm sure it became clear to him, but at, at first glance, it seems like a paradox. But it's reasonable to apply the title Everlasting Father to Jesus. So as we go through this, we are going to spend this morning looking at the Everlasting Father. We're going to look at everlasting. We're going to break it into two, so it's a little simpler. We're going to look at everlasting first, then we're going to look at Father, then we're going to put the two together and see what the two do when they're related to one another in context. All right, so everlasting, right? In terms, everlasting in terms is hard to understand, right? I look at the other terms the other guys got, and they got like wonder, might, peace, counselor, prince, father, and God. Like those are all kind of a little bit easier to wrap my head around, but everlasting is hard. Like, ever, like to, to think about something that always existed, I, I don't know, it just hurts my head. Like, I can't, I can't comprehend that because I have a starting point. Like, I came into this world and, like, I have a birthday and, like, I can't understand what it's like to be everlasting, to exist before time existed and to exist forever. It's, it's really difficult. It hurts my head. Um, it really makes my head hurt. Um, <laughs> most of this, so then I was thinking through this everlasting, because like in our temporal world, like most things don't last very long, right? The other day, like like last week, like no joke, last week I was with my parents and we were going, like we were looking for something and somehow we went through their cabinets and I saw this like super shiny, like pink iPod video, iPod and it was like slammed in like the, the bottom of a drawer. And I remember like when those things like first came out, like I coveted them like crazy. Like I definitely wanted a video iPod because I was like, these are the coolest things in the world. I can put all of my MP3s that I, yeah, I won't, I won't talk about Napster. We won't go into that. But, um, but yeah, you can put all of your MP3s um, on your iPod and carry them around. But now like that iPod is like, it's just stuck in a cabinet where no one's ever going to use it again. It'll be there for probably a long time. And it's, it's just gone. But I, I, I love tech, but it, it doesn't last, right? A lot of times it's just a massive waste of money. But that's like, that's like, that just characterizes almost everything in our culture, right? Because like almost everything in our culture doesn't last. But we have a God who's everlasting, right? And this is better than gobstoppers because gobstoppers, they don't last forever. I'll just tell you, like, I love them, but they don't, they don't last forever. But God is everlasting, he will always be wonderful. He will always be glorious, right? He now and he always will be amazing, right? The word everlasting literally means from eternity, right? So he's from eternity. He's from the earliest of times. He always existed. But it also not only focuses on the past, but on the future. He's to eternity. He goes to eternity. This word describes Jesus as everlasting. He always existed and he always will exist, so how can one who is born always existed, right? When Jesus was born, he was born of the Virgin Mary, but that wasn't when he took on existence. That's when he took on flesh. He took on human form. He took on human frailty. To have an everlasting presence of God is the most hopeful thing 
that one could imagine. This is a God of great hope. Right? When I think about the term everlasting, and I hope if you think about this term as you see it over Christmas season going forth, when you see everlasting, that you would see that God is a great hope. Look at how much hope, right? Like, look at our culture of how much hope they place in a finite, temporal, sinful person for politics, right? Like, how excited people get that the possibility that someone who serves for four years might actually make a massive difference, even though they're corrupt and sinful, right? We have a God who has always been king over all of creation since it began, right? How much hope can we have in a God who is everlasting? It's a term of divinity, what else besides God can always exist? This is a term that, God, that describes Jesus' divinity. It's a declaration that this child would be, for the Israelites who hung their faith on Abraham, he would be greater than Abraham, for Abraham had a starting point. This is a God who is greater than creation, a God who existed before creation came to be. And Paul reminds us in Colossians, he says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is the everlasting God who made an everlasting covenant between God and creation to never flood the earth again. Who can make an everlasting covenant besides the everlasting God? This is the God who made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, a covenant that was filled with blessing, the promise of future salvation that's more numerous than the stars. The everlasting father to whom Isaiah prophesied was greater than creation, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses. And the psalmist records this in Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus is an everlasting God. He is a God of great hope. And so as we transition, we're going to look at father, right? And when I think about father, I hope for all of us as we as we go on from here, that we would always remember that God is a God of great grace. God is a God of great grace. I know for some in this room, like, Father is a loaded term, right? Like, for some, for some of you, it brings a lot of good memories, right? You think about Father, you have a lot of good memories. For others, it brings a lot of baggage, right? Even if you have a good Father, which I, a lot of us probably did, you still have scars and in, from their imperfections, right? When we... When we talk about father, some only know a father as someone who's physically and emotionally absent. To some, the idea of father is something we try to avoid or we try to overcome. Some had absent fathers. Some had fathers who were workaholics. Some had stoic fathers who showed no emotion whatsoever, always pretending to be perfect. Some had judgmental fathers, and it didn't matter how hard you worked or how hard you tried, you never did enough. They never understood your heart. They never shared their struggles. Maybe they never validated your worth or they never shared how much they love you. The real reality is we're all deeply tainted by the fall. Every father falls short of the love displayed by the heavenly father. Right? Without grace, a lot of grace, right, Rosalie? I am a failing father. Without Jesus, I'm, yeah, she's like, mm-hmm. She'll be like, you're mean. That's what she usually says. You're mean. Um, I'm not trying to be mean, just loving, but yeah, I'm, I am a, I'm a sinful man, so I, I try, I'll try to do better. Um, when I was in Dallas, um, I spoke with one of the older ladies who led the women's ministry, and I, I asked her as we were expecting a child, just because I was thinking through fatherhood, I said, what is, what is one thing? Because I got this opportunity for one of these older ladies that I respected who was leading this larger women's ministry, and she, she paused for a minute, 
um, when I asked her, you know, what, what is one thing you wish all fathers would know? And she just looked at me after she paused, and she says, I wish that they knew how important they were. I wish they knew how important they were, because I think as fathers, we don't take our role seriously. My prayer is that because of the love and grace of Jesus, to those who have been granted the gift of fatherhood, that we wouldn't take it for granted, but we'd imitate the love of Jesus. But sometimes it's not failing fathers, right? Sometimes it's the failing kids, right? Sometimes it's kids, sometimes it's Rose, Rosalie fails, and so do all my kids, as, do, as did I when I was a kid. We fail, right? And so the story that highlights failing kids is prodigals, right? The story of the prodigal son makes this clear. And in Luke 15, we see this story play out. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them, right? And it doesn't take a long time for this property and this inheritance to run dry. And he was longing to be fed with the pods and the pigs, and no one gave him anything, right? The son who had great favor, who had great grace, great intimacy, he finally reached this point where he had no intimacy, no grace, and no help at all. No one would give him anything. He was alone, right? The prodigal chose to pursue his own selfish desires, his own wants, and he left the unconditional love of the father where he desperately wanted to be close, but instead he was separated by great distance and great shame, but, right, like I love buts in the Bible where you have this transition where things don't go the way that you would expect or the way that they should, where there's grace. Every time you see, like, most of the time where you see buts in the Bible, it's, it's just this grace of the Father, right? And it says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger, right? The son came to his senses, and while he was still alive, he realized he could turn around he humbled himself and was willing to be just a hired hand. He realized he needed help. He needed the grace of a father, even if that grace was as basic as the kindness shown to just an ordinary laborer. He acknowledged his sin, and the grace of the father welcomed him with the best robe, new shoes, and a big steak. It's a fattened calf, but I like steak better when I translate it. Um, for, for this, my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate, right? We're all failing kids. No one's perfect. We've all sinned in various ways. We've all abandoned God's grace in selfish pursuits, making a clear path to destruction, right? But, but even if you didn't go off the trail, um, as some of us have wandered far from grace, right? The, the brother who didn't squander his wealth found himself to be the antagonist to the father's love. He chose not to extend grace to his brother. He didn't want to forgive, Right? How hard must it have been for him to, to forgive? Right? His brother just returned with nothing, like absolutely nothing from his share of the inheritance. Well, the other share of the inheritance was the brother's. So how would you feel? You know this guy came back, and now he not only took half, now he's taking your share. Right? Like, I wouldn't want to forgive this guy. Like, my gut instinct would be like, no, you wasted yours. This is my share. Don't take mine. Right? Um, and so we see... The older brother in frustration, he says, look, for many years I've served you. I, displayed, I, I never disobeyed your command, right? Which is probably a lie. I'm sure he did, right? I, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, but when this son of yours came, right? So with this son of yours, right? Like he's like, this is not, a, I'm not going to mention this to my brother. This is your son. Like I have no relationship to him. Who devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed and fattened the calf for him, right? If your life is put together, 
right? If you're in this room and you don't have suicidal thoughts, you've never had suicidal thoughts, if you've never been entangled in sin, if you've never been addicted to porn, if you've never felt isolated and alone, then, then willingly, right, not begrudgingly, use your portion of your heavenly Father's inheritance to welcome those who have struggled back into relationship with the Father. Those of you who have intimacy with the Father, grant the others the same intimacy. Help others see the unconditional love of God through your unconditional love towards them, right? This is the heart of Paul when he writes, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, right? Those of you who God has given an inheritance should restore him in spirit of gentleness. And I love the father's response to the older brother. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Just like the father of the prodigal, we have an amazing father who shows everlasting, amazing grace. I hope we have earthly fathers that represent and share the same characteristics of our heavenly father. But regardless of who our earthly father is or what he's done, the heavenly father is awesome, right? The heavenly father extends grace. The heavenly father fixes messes. Heavenly Father is always present. He's never selfish. He always shows compassion. He always listens. He's quick to show mercy. He's quick to forgive. And he genuinely desires to have a relationship with us. Right? We see God as Father even in the beginning of God's story in Genesis in the life of Adam. They sinned grievously against God. Yet he showed amazing grace. He, he postponed the consequences of death until they had a son. This allowed the ability for things to be restored eventually through Jesus. And even when they left, he graciously clothed them. He gave them clothes to cover their shame before he removed them from the garden. Sin chips away. Sin chips away at the intimacy we have with the Father. And the loving kindness of the Father will discipline us for sinful behavior. Discipline can seem rough for all of those of you who have experienced God's discipline can seem rough. A loving father has gives both consequences and grace. And as I thought about this, like a loving father gives consequences and he gives grace. If you think about a dictator, they're only going to give you consequences, right? And if you think about those, if you want to go to a church, like a Unitarian church, they're going to give you only grace, right? I went, I went down, I, we, we visited a Unitarian church once, which is quite the experience, but we, we went down um, after the service, after they got done sharing, um, went down and spoke to him, and I just, I just was having a conversation with him about Jesus, and and I and I could tell that I was just making this guy upset. But he he got to the point where he's like, "Fine, if if you want to believe in Jesus, that's okay." Like because he caught himself because they don't they wanted to show grace to everybody except for those who believe in Jesus. But if if you're looking for just grace then a Unitarian church would be a place to be. But the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he received. As a father, he shows compassion to his children, so the love shows compassion to those who fear him. I was going to, I had in my, my manuscript when I wrote it out, I had all of Hebrews 12 in here, and it took up like a whole page. And my wife like looked over in my manuscript, and she's like, are you really going to read all of Hebrews 12? <laughs> and so... I changed it for you. So you can thank my wife. We're not going to read all of Hebrews 12, but you should read Hebrews 12. But Hebrews 12 quotes Proverbs 3, and it says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. 
right? I'm not perfect in raising my kids, but I seek to every time I can, when they're in trouble or disciplined, I try to help them understand God's grace, right? I want them to understand, yes, there's consequences. Yes, there's punishment when you do wrong things, but there's also grace that extends to our darkest, most isolated, most selfish and sinful behaviors. As I wrestled through, there's so many, there's so many stories. You could almost go through every passage in the Bible, but I'm picking out a few, and there's three passages that I want us to kind of look at um, that show just a different aspect of God's, um, God's love and, his, and Jesus as a father. And I see this in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Right? So Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus replies to this. He says, How can a man be born when he's old? Right? This doesn't make sense. This guy's loony. Right? Can he enter a second time into his mother womb and be born? All right? But Jesus makes it clear, Nicodemus, you need a new father. You need a heavenly father. And Jesus answered him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right? Nicodemus needed a gracious new father. And so we also see just God being a father to the woman at the well. And we see this in John 4. It shows that God is a God of great compassion, right? As Jesus is passing through some area, he stops at a, call, a town called Sychar and asks a woman who came to draw water at the well for a drink. And as they're talking, he, Jesus asks her to call her husband. And she responds, I have no husband. Then Jesus said to her, you know what? You're right. Um, when you say, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said to me is true, right? And I, I love what she does, right? Like she gets down and someone just tells her all of her, all of her mistakes and her life's a mess. And she goes and she's, she goes to the whole town. She says, come, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ, right? Jesus as a father is the only one who can tell us how sinful and screwed up we are. And yet we don't feel resentful, but we feel overcome by his love, right? That's a father. Jesus was who is loved and sent by the Father, is full of fatherly love and great grace. The woman that Jesus met by the will, the well, for only a moment, experienced greater intimacy than she'd ever experienced with five husbands. Many look for intimacy, find a, many of us, like when we're looking for intimacy, a lot of us um, find a shallow satisfaction in sinful sexuality, Right? as the prodigal did when he squandered his wealth on prostitutes. And Jesus highlights his fatherly love to the woman who was caught in adultery. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, now in the law, Moses commanded us, should we stone this woman? What do you say? And I love Jesus' response, right? And as they continued to ask him, right, they didn't just ask him once, they just annoyingly kept asking, what should we do? What should we do? What do, you, what do you want to do? Do you want to stone them? And Jesus is sitting there. He just stands up. And he said, let them who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And I love, like, what happens. Like, at that, no one stayed. Not a one. And so Jesus looks at her and says, woman, where are they? No one's condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Right? I love this story because it shows that a father's love trumps the law. Our father wrote the law. Jesus fulfilled it as a father. He extends his gracious love to us, not the weight of the law. Right? So for Nicodemus, we need, 
reminds us that we need a new father, right? The woman at the well shows us no earthly relationship can provide everlasting satisfaction, for only Jesus can provide a perfect and everlasting relationship. Jesus, the God of great grace, uses the adulterous woman to show his authority over the law, and his gentle kindness is a perfect representation of the heavenly Father. So we, we looked at Jesus, the everlasting God. We looked at Jesus as the Father of great grace. And we're going to look at the two terms together, right? When these two terms come together, we have a God who is a God of great hope and a God of great grace. It is this eternal God and is this Father. And they describe a God who's over all things. He's a loving, intimate creator. He lovingly holds all of time in his hands. It's the imagery of a king who holds every atom of time under his control. Jesus is the prophesied, eternal, sovereign king and loving savior, a father who laid down his life for his children. We have an everlasting father who desires to give good gifts. Right? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Right? It's, it's Christmas time, and I, I, love, I love buying gifts at Christmas time. I love putting gifts under the tree. I love the excitement and the anticipation with gifts. But it is a season where it can get very skewed on what is good gifts. And I think we've got to keep our heads straight on what does it mean? What is a good gift? Right? The ability to forgive is a good gift, right? The ability to have peace amidst trial and hardship is a good gift. The ability to love when you're hated, right? The, the ability to give thanks when things aren't fair is a good gift. The ability to be generous when you don't have very much is a good gift, right? The gift to avoid temptation when no one else would know if you sinned is a good gift, right? The gift to repent when you could have made an everlasting wreck of your life, is a good gift, right? Just like the prodigal who came to his senses, if you come to your senses, that is a good gift, right? This is why the Father sent the Son so he might be restored into a gracious relationship with the Father. Jesus is a good gift. He is the best gift. Let us not forget that. I love the story of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. He receives this message of God delivered him through Isaiah. So Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, and he repeats, as we, as we have in Isaiah, um, this future deliverance of Israel from Assyria. So this is when Isaiah tells this message to Hezekiah, and he says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hands of the king of Assyria, and will defend this city. This shall be a sign to you from the God, the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun and the dial of Ahaz turned back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. Right? Like, this is the coolest. I, I wish I could see this, right? Like, where, like, time actually, like, goes backwards. The sun goes backwards. Um, right? Like, God, the everlasting father, like, this term, everlasting father, describes that Jesus is over every atom of time. Right? He controls every atom of time. He can rewrite it. He can rewrite the story. We see a God who can rewrite every scar, every trial, every, every hardship for good, right? Like, I, I think I was sharing with David the other day, right? We were talking, and I was just like, you know, I was unemployed for almost a year, so I was looking for jobs and doing things here and there, and I was like, you know what? Like, I wouldn't undo it. Like, it was hard, 
and it was, it was rough, but like God taught me a lot through that season, right? Like the hard seasons, I don't regret, right? Like, and I think for those of us who know Jesus, who know Jesus as a loving father, like we look back on those trials and those hardships and we don't regret them. We're thankful for them, right? We know that for those of us who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his good purpose, right? Jesus overcame death, right? He overcame death. He can, he can overcome the eternal consequences of sin. He's the everlasting God. He can rewrite time. He can rewrite our lives. Since he gave us life, he can keep us from dying eternally, right? He can keep us eternally alive with him. He can give us a life that glorifies the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let me close. Let me close with this, right? If we're going to to sum it all up, right, our response to this everlasting God, this God of great grace, this God of great hope, right? I love what Matthew 5, 16 shares, God's word. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, right? May our lives shine and declare that God is an awesome God, that he's a loving Father, an everlasting Father. Let us pray.